This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to episode 90 of What Most People Think. And have you had, have you had, I'm not going to ask if you've bought my book yet, there'll be plenty of that as you'd imagine, have you had a meal inside yet? Have you had a meal inside? And if, if you have, did you make it a good one? Now I would like to say that I, I started off with somewhere salubrious, somewhere that really recognised that new liberty. But it was actually a KFC in Bedford. It was a KFC in Bedford. As my wife shrewdly observed, uh, it looked when we sat down, it looked like they'd never have had anybody sat down at a KFC in Bedford. They looked fucking shocked that anybody would want to dine in there. But my son, he was happy enough. He had the popcorn chicken. And there's actually, you know, Bedford is one of the places that's uh, been on in the news for having the Indian variant. Uh, Bedford, Blackburn, uh, Bolton. I think maybe we should just have surge testing in places that begin with a B. How about that? Is that scientific? I don't know. But this is what most people think. You know, this is the comedic, topical comedy podcaster, you know, doesn't always have to be the grown up in the room. Doesn't always have to, I was going to say, doesn't always have to trust the science, but... The way things are these days, somebody will be on Twitter going, anti-vax Jeff Norcott questions the Pfizer. Um, first up, look, the book came out Thursday of last week. It exceeded exceeded our expectations in terms of early sales. And when, when I say that, that might just mean the expectations started off rock bottom. But whatever expectations were, the, the reaction and the sales were brilliant, man. And just people talking to me about my parents, you have no idea what a buzz that is and you know i know there's like a couple of people out there that wanted more or more theory and you know getting and there is politics in it of course but i just know that my parents did mental things and and one of the things i wanted to do in the in the book is share some of those so thank you so much for that thank you for those of you that have been kind enough to go on review sites you know they all they all help i mean amazon the main one is the one that people go to annoyingly but anywhere that you've you've put those those reviews they they all help uh, they all help with getting the book out there. And all this early bit is really, you got to come off the wheels hot. Nobody has ever said that to me in publishing. That was that was my phrase. And it wasn't very, a very good one. Uh, but let's get back to the bread and butter of the show. New Patreons. Peter Beaton. Peter Beaton. Are you a, you a character from a child's story, are you? Then Peter Beaton came bouncing down the boulevard. Uh, Peter Beaton is a new Patreon. And Andy Lawrence. Andy Lawrence. Is, is this a name that you've just made up to give me as little Andy Lawrence? It just sounds like a charter manager. Was Andy Lawrence a charter manager? Lenny Lawrence. 
Are you son of Lenny Lawrence? Uh, Cuss Cowan from the last episode. By the way, thanks for all the lovely feedback about the book launch episode with my showbiz buddy, Catherine Ryan. Thanks again to her for doing that. People seem to really love that episode. Uh, Cuss Count-wise, for me, it was 0.81 a minute. And I think that that was very, very feminist of me to, to not sort of modify my swearing at all in the presence of a lady. But fair play to Catherine. Now, the highest placed lady on the Cuss Count leaderboard... So yeah, 12 swears after zero swears in her first outing. I'm looking at David Domain has crunched the numbers for me here. And uh, yeah, that's a significant uptick. So uh, fair fucks to her. Now, coming up today, what a guess we've got. This is why I'm going to keep this all uh, nice and punchy and brief. We've got Matt Ford um, requested by probably more patrons than anybody. And we had so many questions when I put the shout out to the Patreon. So thank you so much for those. We managed to fit in uh, as many as we could. But part of the reason for it, we'd already booked it in with Matt. But then there was this thing we did on Politics Live on Thursday um, last week. And we'll explain. I'll explain it when Matt comes on. But uh, it was interesting. It was an interesting show to have two comedians on a politics show. And it certainly went away that probably nobody uh, expected. But I did, I don't think I spoke as much. I mean, people have often said to me, Jeff, let your fucking guest speak. Um, but he's Matt's so clear-headed and, and so funny, but so insightful about what's happening in politics that you will ask yourself the question, why isn't he in politics? And we do answer that question uh, at the end of the show. I mentioned Patreons a second ago. Um, there will be a Patreon episode coming up Patreon-only episode coming up this Friday. I'm aware that I owe you one. But I'm sort of thinking if we're not doing the politics today because we're having a big chat with a big guest, let's do that Friday. And I'll be reaching out to the patrons later in the week to see which subjects uh, you want covered. So let's just crack into it. But before that, of course, we've got to do the thank you and the fuck you. Uh, thank you to Peter Rabbit 2, which is out of the cinema, which we can go to. Took my son uh, to the cinema. And it was great, man. It was great to be in a cinema. It was great to hear kids laughing, do you know what I mean? Some kid, a bit fucking annoying, do you know what I mean? Like, some parents a bit annoying for just ignoring what their kids are clearly doing. I don't think your kid needs to be running around with a fucking glow stick in a cinema. You know, first five minutes, it's cute, but then rein it in. Anyway, this is supposed to be a thank you. And the film, it just has this great moment in, and I don't think this is a spoiler alert, where Donald Gleeson's character is a bit uptight. Uh, they, they encourage him to kind of just roll down a hill and it's just very funny the way they physically execute just how bad that's going. So thank you to that. If you've got kids, man, take them out and see it. It's, you know, the great thing as well is it's not too long. Kids films, I think if you're a kids film, you're going an hour and a half, you better be fucking watership down. Do you know what I mean? It's, you better be E.T. because otherwise 75 minutes is more than enough. And that's what that came in as. And then I saw The Guardian, right? It's been a while since we had a little Guardian rant. I don't know if The Guardian are a bit starved of attention or subscription money or fucking any revenue whatsoever. But just out of nowhere, because it's the 20th anniversary of Shrek, they do this article just shitting on the film Shrek for no good reason. It's really weird. You've got, you got to check it out. This guy's not funny, the guy says, or it's puerile. Oh, what, a kid's animation that's pure. What a terrible thing that would be. Because since when did kids find shitting and pissing funny? Um, it still is It is funny. Fucking, these, these critics must be dead inside, man. Uh, so then I, I was already annoyed about that. And then I, I, I also tweeted, I thought, right, instead of just being negative about this critic, I'm going to be positive about Peter Rabbit too. And uh, somebody sent me a link that they'd shat on that as well. Two-star review for that. And this is what I think is worst of all. The critic says that basically the humour's not up to much, even though there's some brilliant slapstick. And he says that the funniest jokes, weirdly, get this, are all about how sometimes people have champagne in the fridge for a celebration that never happens. Or sometimes mums and dads put fruit 
uh, in the packed lunchbox just to impress the parents. Think, oh, you mean jokes that are funny to you as a middle class, middle aged parent? How, what a great way, what a great level that would be, wouldn't it, for a kid's animation to pitch, pitch jokes at that level? Why not talk about fucking having affairs with your tennis instructor? You fucking dead inside prick, man. I did not think, I did not think that I'd be ranting this hard about, you know, people going, look at all the stuff that's going on in the world, Jeff. Fucking Israel, you know, uh, local lockdowns. What have I chose to go hard on? It's Peter Rabbit too. Okay, but I'll tell you why. It's because I had a moment in that cinema with my wife and my son. It was just a bit of normality that I didn't want. Tobias, probably something with a hyphen in, pissing on my enjoyment. Okay, let's crack on with what was an absolutely fantastic chat with the brilliant Matt Ford. Okay, making his, some would say, long-awaited debut on what most people think is Mr. Matt Ford. Matt, welcome to the show. Hello. Hello, everyone, and thanks for having me on, Jeff. Well, you know, look, I've wanted to have you on the show for a while, stealing one of your catchphrases from the... <laughs> <laughs> from your podcast but it, I mean with this was already booked in and then we had this appearance together on Politics Live was it Thursday of last week or Friday god yeah what day was it it was a, it was a midweek day it was last late, week it was late last week and it was unusual that they had two comedians on together I thought that you must have thought the same yeah and so it made for an interesting episode but there were there was certainly a lot of love among my patrons for your sparring with Shami Chakrabarti can you, can you just explain what went down there well, firstly, I think people should just like a bit of behind the scenes thing. Because we're all doing it on Zoom these days, you can't see the show. So you can't see the people you're talking to. You can see anything. Which is appalling, really, because if you're in a studio, you can read the non-verbal cues. But you're just yeah. sat in your spare room. I mean, you're clearly in the same room you were in when you did it. Yeah. And so am I. I can see from your thing. So you're just in your spare room or whatever. You can hear, but you can't see. You're mindful that you're being filmed on your own camera. But, you know, apart from that, doesn't really feel like you're on telly and it doesn't feel like there's any interaction with the other guests really and then they were talking about the vaccine i just heard her say big pharma and i just think <laughs> part of the reason why labor is in so much trouble like existential crisis are these really borderline kind of conspiracy theory things and and phrases and yeah. they're quite divisive and doesn't mean that i agree with everything pharmaceutical companies do but just that phrase, and that it's so well, not according to Twitter, Matt. You you are in the pay of big farm. <laughs> yeah. Well, being grateful for a vaccination, Mandy, you were bootlicking the. Yeah, I mean, I've always had. Um, I've needed a lot of medical help in my life for asthma, for eczema, for all sorts of things. Without yeah. the NHS, I would be dead. But it's also true to say that without pharmaceutical companies, I'd be dead. And I've always, I've always, even from a very young age. Just thought, oh man, the people that make these things, whether it's Allen and Hanbury, GlaxoSmithKline, or whatever, I've always looked at the packet and thought, even from a young age, thank God someone studied somewhere and ended up making Ventolin and manufacturing it, or Betnovate, or Penicillin, any of the stuff that I've needed. I mean, I'm not, at the moment, I've got gout, I'm on antibiotics for my eye, I'm on steroids for gout, I'm on a, a steroid for my chest, I'm on yeah. steroid cream. I'm on about 10 different things every morning. And literally every morning I think, oh my God. So dear Imagine old Imagine those commissioners exist. 
Dear old Shammy, it basically walked into a perfect storm of, of your... I mean, I suppose what you did then, Matt, which is, is actually quite unfashionable on the left, but something that I think is a good thing, is you showed gratitude for something. For, for <laughs> gratitude for an existing thing that you thought was good <laughs> in, in, in this country. And they're not going to take that line down. You can't think anything's good, Matt. That doesn't fit with the ethos of the modern left. Well, I also think you have to get out of the kind of public good, private bad, or indeed the other way around. Yep. Going through your life thinking, well, the public sector's rubbish. And, you know, if only we had the untrammeled, unregulated, you know, goods of the private sector. Clearly you need both. And, uh, you know, I'm someone who loves and respects the NHS and uh, all the rest of it. And I'm glad that we have a state that helps people throughout their life. Um, but I'm also very grateful that we have pharmaceutical companies who, who take great financial risk to develop things that keep us alive longer and healthier. So uh, I just thought it just it pushed all my buttons about what was wrong with the Labour Party. I mean, watching it back, I thought, oh, you weren't having it. But let's be it right. I so don't want to people, look rude. You know, I don't want to look rude or nasty. Well, there was a lot of people that thought it, it was great. And then there was a small amount of people who I think thought that they were angry. And the truth is, when people say about politics, oh, we don't want any more Punch and Judy, or we don't want any slanging matches on, on political debates, yes, you fucking do. It's the best version of it. It's how we it's how we feel alive. And I, I didn't think... How we feel alive? Well, you know, when we're all living... <laughs> When we're in middle age, you're sitting up late night watching Question Time. You're waiting for that yeah. person to say the thing that you dis that you disagree with, and then it set up this brilliant sitcom narrative for the rest of the episode. Whereby, then once you'd had a very good chance to plug your live show and your podcast and stuff, then then, then Shammy, a Labour peer no less, went back for second helpings in plugging my book about how I became a Tory, and, and for that reason, this is the perfect time for you to be on the podcast. Well, that, that tells you everything about the hard left. Their enemies, enemies in their friend. They will make alliances even with Jeff Norcott to stick it to the Blairites. But I think something you did that arguably way, way more controversial. Tony Blair. Well, look, I got a lot of, you know, I went up into 2016. Were you going to say Tony Blair? I, I was joking. Tony Blair, but I think the context, I don't know if people are aware of like the show that you did, was it in 2012? Because when I first, I, I spoke about politics, I dipped my toe in the water and then in 2016 I did a show and you get these ridiculous things about people saying, oh, it's refreshing or it's edgy for essentially articulated some really widely held opinions. I would argue that in 2012, you doing a show which was, a love letter to Tony Blair at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival was way, way more kind of edgy and interesting than anything I've ever done. How, how, what, talk, tell me about that show and how it felt doing that at the Edinburgh Fringe. Well, it was never, um, I've never felt myself to be edgy. Uh, and I'm sure you would say the same about yourself. Like these are just kind of feel, feel like fairly normal opinions and election results suggest that these are mainstream opinions well, by oh, lots yes, and lots yes, of people. Absolutely. However, I guess at the Edinburgh Festival, that's a you could argue there's a different type of audience, perhaps. Um, but it was more that it wasn't written as a love letter to Tony Blair, although that's obviously how it came across. <laughs> but it was uh, it was just how I felt about stuff, and I thought, well, I've got this experience of working for Labour. Yeah. I was, you know, and, and anyway, I just think it was more. Although, okay, there are a number of things here. One is, from my point of view, Tony Blair is the most naturally talented politician I've ever encountered and I think this country has ever produced. In terms of ability, I don't mm. think there's, there's still not a politician around today that gets near him. And you can argue about who the great prime ministers are, but that's often about cometh the hour, particularly it is with Churchill. In terms of his political skill, Tony Blair is unrivaled. And I worked with a lot of politicians and I interview a lot of them. 
No one gets anywhere near. So he's kind of this freak of talent. Now, I have my side in politics, although I'm not Labour anymore, but I have my views, I have my values. But I also do enjoy politics. Not Well, kind of as a form of entertainment, as a form of sport. Yeah, me too. I like watching a great speech, even if I disagree with it. I consume yeah. politics partly on that level. So it always annoyed me when people really hated him because I thought, you can disagree with the decision, but you can't say he's shit. Like, it would be like people saying, <laughs> Ronaldo's shit. You're like, okay, he does my head in. I, you know, I'd hated him what getting really sent like off. When work. there was a certain sniffiness in our game about Michael McIntyre, you remember that originally, and it, it seems to have dissipated quite rightly, but you go like, he's fucking, am- he's so good at what he does. Like, you cannot. Yeah, what? yeah but it might not be your brand of, of stuff. And I think that that is true with Blair. I remember when he used to talk, there was a way to say, you know, and, and I would almost often feel like I was going to be really stupid if I didn't agree with what he was going to say. <laughs> but I would often be prepping myself to want to agree with what he said, you know, and he, he, had, he cast, I mean, saying cast the spell is quite a negative way of putting it. Although I did sort, I did, I had fallen out of love with it by kind of 2005, but I suppose I'm really interested in that era before like 2015 and Brexit, when it all got really fractious, people forget about the 2010 to 2015 period and the coalition it was more about Bullingdon rather than the Tory brand as such, wasn't it? And and the legacy of contempt for Blair was still growing at that time, wasn't it? Because we had the Chilcot inquiry and stuff like that. And and you still got on stage. <laughs> <laughs> You're making me sound far braver and edgier than I than oh, I, I, than I truly you know, am. I saw, the, I saw the show and I thought it was... But one thing that I think people like about you, particularly on this podcast, is that, is that you do love democracy and you believe in democracy. So I've heard you over the years, you know, you, you, you've got no sort of a special love for UKIP, but I remember you talking about... Remember that election where they polled pretty well, got no seats, you know? And even though you were a strong Remainer, you at least acknowledged the democratic deficit of the EU. Was, was, it, was it a problem on the Remain movement? Was that the EU slightly got venerated to this kind of magical band of benevolent wizards? Was that... Massively. Slightly? And and I think actually it's, it's only post-Brexit, in fact it's Covid that's really highlighted the danger of assuming all our politicians are shit and all those ones over there are wonderful. And if, you know, this, this kind of narrative has taken root that the EU is by definition, progressive, and Britain is, by definition, regressive. Mm. And that is a total misjudgment. And there are people... If you think Boris Johnson's right-wing, wait till you sit around the top table at the EU and you're dealing with the Italians and you're dealing with Orbán's people. Like, if you think this is a regressive government, then get around the top table at the EU and and see some of the people you're having to deal with. Now, I still wish we'd won that referendum. I think Britain's future would be far better placed inside the EU. But you're absolutely right. The danger of assuming that effectively, oh, people in this club are morally better than people in that club, because as the vaccine showed, and actually as the coverage of not just procurement, where the EU was slow and then was basically pissed off that we'd been a bit (laughs) faster and more nimble and agile. um, And that has implications, of course, for Scotland. If, uh, you know, if Nicola Sturgeon actually does want Scotland to be independent, well, had that happened, they'd have been part of the EU process. Mm. You'd be on this tiny little island where south of the border, the, the vaccine's getting rolled out really quick and, you know, just up the road, they're waiting. That would have been that would have been appalling for, for Scottish people to have to go through that. And look at the way they treated Ireland. What you also had was, the way I was really shocked, actually, at Merkel in particular, and the way she talked about the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, because Hmm. it was irresponsible. It spread vaccine hesitancy in this country as well. These are, Merkel is a big, legitimate, successful politician. She's seen really as 
if you were to pick a ruler of Europe in the last 10 years, you'd say it was Merkel. And yet yeah. here she was using really irresponsible language around that vaccine. Even the way that people drop the word Oxford out of it, I do think suggests something. An inability to accept that this country sort of led the way on something something good. Does that speak to something in, in British political life and discourse, Matt, in that there is a part of the left, you know, and Or- Orwell, was it Orwell said it about English intellectuals and this, this discomfort around believing that we do things well or have done anything well? or Is that, is that a pro- particular problem on the left? I think it's a problem in general that Britain's relationship with its history is very difficult. And I think for some people, they think, well, if you're proud to be British, you've got to defend everything we've ever done. Yeah. That's ludicrous. Equally ludicrous is saying, well, you know, our history is appalling and we should all be thoroughly ashamed of ourselves. <laughs> there is a middle ground where you go, we're proud of the NHS. We're proud of, uh, you know, defending our allies in World War II. We're, def- we're proud of removing Slobodan Milosevic. We're proud of the help we gave in Sierra Leone. And you can also say, actually, with some of our actions in the past have made the world a worse place. We need to face up to them. We need to be honest about them. And if possible, you need to put them right uh, in an appropriate way. I think that's where most people are. No, and I, I just think it's only when you get entrenched on both sides, if you're too leavey, too remainy, too left, too right, you get in this thing where you've got to defend everything. And I think most people are just kind of around the middle where they go, yeah, you know, conquering and enslaving large parts of the world wasn't great. Equally, like I say, World War II, the NHS on, on this, the vaccine, of course, mm. vaccines have been made elsewhere that are just as good. Um, just have that. I think most people, like with everything, I think there's something about the AstraZeneca, I think is fundamentally British, is it's quite... Look, it's not, it's not, it's not massively expensive. There's a kind of premium, fast-moving consumer good feel about it. it. You don't need loads of fridges, you know. All right, it might not be up there with the top European. It's like cars, isn't it? All right, it might not be up there with the top Europeans, but it's all right. The Pfizer, it does feel like a bit of luxury. You're gonna treat yourself. Treat yourself, or, or take the missus out for a Moderna. Um, <laughs> But there's, so there's something fundamentally British, which kind of leads me to something I was going to say was like, I, I often think like on I, on the left, there's often talk about British exceptionalism as a part of nationalism. So, and I think weirdly, the two most defining British myths aren't about glory and success, right? They're, they're both from the Second World War. The most recent ones are Dunkirk, right? And uh, Surviving the Blitz. Both of them are about narrow escapes, right? <laughs> it's the same as like a last minute equaliser or batting out for the draw. We, we, I don't think, for a lot of people, the British myth is about bestriding the world and the empire. It's about fucking hanging in there, right? <laughs> That's a really good point. And uh, there's probably an element of truth in it because one of, the, another, one of the things that frustrated me, just around the whole Brexit debate, was this idea that everyone who voted Leave had this sort of misty-eyed view of the empire. Some people do, and you see them dressing up in all sorts of Parliament Square. Mm. I don't think, just instinctively, I don't think that's where the majority of leavers were. No. I disagreed with them on uh, whether we should leave or remain. I probably disagree with them on other things as well. But I know that constituency exists. I just don't think it's as widespread as people think it is. Well, yeah, I mean, like, it, I didn't... And also, it kind of wasn't about the EU. I mean, this is, <laughs> it wasn't really about whether we should stay in the European Union or not. 
Yeah, it was. Yeah, it's like even if you're talking, you know, if you wanted to be negative about bows and say they're stupid and un- uneducated, I don't know how uneducated you would have to be to think that leaving a European political union would somehow spark up the good old days. We'll get Hong Kong back. Things are a bit tasty there. We still got the Falklands and Gibraltar. Like this would be some sort of starting point. What most people think. I mean, while we're on the, sort of the subject of recent politics, have you been surprised by what's happened under Starmer? Because I've got to be honest, it was a part of me that sort of thought, you know, the grown-ups in the room, right? The old grown-ups in the room. I even I thought, yeah, look, it's almost like they've gone, all right, okay, we'll have a Blairy type go and we'll just fucking win. All right, we tried it. Let, let's do it. Uh, let, you do it your way. And, and yet, I, I, you know, I, I don't dislike Keir Starmer at all. I think he's a good man, a decent bloke and stuff. Um, but are you surprised with the way the recent elections have gone and the way, the way that polling generally is at the moment? Not really, because I think what people have to remember is just how, how bad Labour's relationship with the public is. It is beyond anything I have ever experienced in my life. And I think it's worse than it was in the militant years, worse than it was in the 80s. Labour is beyond irrelevant to most people in this country. And on top of that, it is hated. In fact, in large elements of the Jewish community, it was feared. Now, for the Labour Party to end up in that place is unprecedented. Mm. And part of the... Politics happens fast, and the machinery and the scaffolding of our democracy and the way politics is covered can sometimes make deeply unserious people look very serious. And I think that's true of Boris Johnson and it's true of Jeremy Corbyn. Is that, oh, it's Robert Peston interviewing them. So there has to be a kind of bar these guys must have cleared. What politics tells us, particularly in the last 10 or 15 years, is that if political parties don't fulfil their roles as the gatekeepers of our democracies, and it's true of the Republicans in America, the whole thing breaks down. And that is, a, that is a vital function that they perform, is it's up to them to choose the very best candidate, and it's up to us to then choose among the parties. If the parties don't choose the very, the very best candidates, the whole system fails. Mm. And there was a kind of, in a way, the fact that Corbyn's leader of the Labour Party was treated as a serious politician kind of didn't tell the full story, didn't allow the full horror of it to completely land. And it's only now that he's gone, partially gone, mm that I think people are realising just how horrific the damage he did to Labour was. So, yes, Keir Starmer is clearly a million times better than Jeremy Corbyn in every regard. And that pulls through in his personal poll ratings. And even if you talk to people who don't vote Labour, they quite like him. He's not a, a repellent individual. He's, I think it's fair to say, a better candidate for Prime Minister than Boris Johnson. He takes the job more seriously. He would do a better job of it. That's the first time Labour could say that for 10 or 11 years. That is a big deal. But he's trying to rescue this, this burning, torched brand that is like, that takes a, people are so, I think this is, people forget with politics. So much of it is emotional. Mm-hmm. And oh, they, yeah, absolutely, yeah. You know, the, the British people were offended by what Labour did to them. Like they are, this isn't just, oh, I disagreed with Blair in Iraq. Corbyn is like, you insulted me by making me vote for that. Or even, you know, abusing my history of support for the party. You know, Labour people are emotional. They think of their granddad. They think of the, their forebears who are trade unionists. And if they don't vote Labour, they feel some sort of like historic guilt in the pit of their stomach. Labour gambled on that guilt. They said, we're going to push that as far as we possibly can. We're going to pick the worst possible candidate and it's on you if he loses. That's just atrocious. I, I mean, I think you're right. I was surprised at the the 
overt hatred towards the Labour Party. I mean, there's obviously somebody who has a bias towards the Conservatives. Broadly speaking, I want them to win most elections. You know, sometimes I don't want them. <laughs> sometimes I don't want them to win by too much. So no, exactly. Yeah. I, I, I like this sort of John Major '92 type majority, which just about keeps me in check. But I think that you know where it's gone. I would argue is with this. It's like they talk about the, the tribal loyalty of working class Labour voters. The thing that I didn't realise about that is you can flip that on its head. And the same passion that they put into being loyal. Now, I mean, you look at you mentioned about Starmer's uh, suitability for prime minister, but recent polling, it's quite astonishing, really. And, and again, it's gone so far the other way that they some um, Boris Johnson had a net lead in terms of who's a more honest person than Keir Starmer. I, he's fucking not like no. But the, this pendulum has swung so far the other way. It sort of leads me to something I said at the beginning of the year. And I, I've been I've been touting this a bit, but no one agrees with me. Is that the future of the Labour Party is a formal split. Eventually, this is what I think, and and, and that they will just the left will need to organise a progressive coalition. I mean, am I off my head? Is that or will the Labour Party party find some way to sort their shit out? Well, I think the Labour Party can find a way, and it's done it before. It doesn't mean they necessarily will, and I think they're in a slightly different position to the one they were in before Blair became leader. And obviously, what you had for New Labour to happen. We needed Kinnock, who was a candidate of the left. That's how he got the leadership in the wake of the defeat of Michael Foote. It's then during his leadership that he effectively goes on a journey as leader and realises. And he then has the guts to really take on Militant and drive them out. It's a phenomenal bravery, a huge personal cost, Kinnock, to take on that task and to effectively take the bullets that then allows John Smith and then Tony Blair to move the Labour Party to a far more acceptable position. Labour has to go through something like that again, because what it has to tell, because if it wants to win, it does. If it wants to win, at some point, a Labour leader has to say to the country, what just happened is unacceptable, we are definitely changing. And if it's not as clear as that, the public aren't gonna get the message. Mm. That inevitably triggers some sort of civil war, but. Uh, uh, and I don't think it's a bad thing that they have it, as long as the moderates win. If they lose, Labour never wins again. But a so-called progressive alliance or coalition is something that I was always against when I worked for the party, because don't presume that take the Green Party, because they are uh, you know, pioneers on the environment, that they're necessarily progressive. I mean... I was talking about this recently with a guest off mic on my podcast, so I can't name who it is. But uh, I've never met activists as angry as Greens. And everyone thinks, if you never encounter them, everyone goes, oh, they're lovely, aren't they, the Greens? You're like, you sit in a room with them. Now, I know they're not all like that. No, but, but, that, but that's also a bit, a bit... You go, well, actually, Labour shouldn't be anywhere near any of that. You can't... Have, because they're basically... A lot of the Green Party members I encountered pre-Corbyn were basically what Corbyn then hoovered up. They're really angry, militant types. And, uh, you know, I understand the passion, but you can't behave like that all the time. If you're Keir Starmer trying to win an election, cobbling together with people like that is going to drive away all those centre-ground votes you need to get off the yeah. Tories. So, really, and I think it, you know, the experience of Corbyn proves, really, Labour is the biggest centre-left brand in town. Uh, the Lib Dems... You know, for, we can't talk about their tactics on stopping Brexit in 2019. It was still really hard for them to make a dent in that, just that big. How, how did you feel, feel about that? As someone that was sort of strongly pro-Remain, but also a Democrat, bollocks to Brexit, as, 
I don't like swearing in political slogans of mainstream <laughs> party. I don't mind it. You know what? I really like seeing political graffiti, <laughs> like, even if it's fucking horrible, because I think that's quite cool, man. There's something edgy to it, even if I disagree with it. When mainstream political parties do it, you just think, oh, no. Let you kind of, you know what, with stuff like bollocks to Brexit, suggest it's some grassroots campaign and let them put the stickers all around the conference. So you kind of get it out there, but you equally go, oh, God, you know, we're not having that unofficial stuff. And it's a bit naughty, but... Ugh. I hope, well, look, I know you're enjoying this chat with Matt Ford. This is what most people think. This is our, this is our sweet spot, isn't it? This is what we do. I, and, and look, if you're a hard left person, I know Matt, uh, sometimes on the hard left, people can take against him. But it's just my theory that it's because you know that he's right. Just a quick hype. Obviously, if you haven't bought the book, uh, then go ahead and buy the book. People are, are enjoying it. And in terms of reviews, I know there's a, a number of ways. That I know a lot of people got an audible. But the, the, the review, if you leave it on their site... Basically, what I'm saying is the main one is is the Amazon one. That's the one that people always seem to fucking go. Basically, I'm just arguing for something that kind of underpins Amazon's market dominance. But that that rating is 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 really crucial there. So, what I'm, if you haven't read it or you didn't like it, I'm not I'm not asking for freebies here. I'm just saying that if you've read it and enjoyed it and reviewed it somewhere else, you could also, if you've got an Amazon account, go on and you know say whatever you thought about it. Uh, this is a little uh, in joke for the Patreons, but there is. Uh, well, there was a couple of people that tried to shit post my site early on. Amazon took down a couple because they were just frankly fucking abusive. They clearly hadn't read the book. There was another one on there that didn't have read the book. But then there was one of our friends. Uh, I think her name was... I'm not going to say her name because I don't want anyone digging her out. But in fairness to her, she did read the book, but she didn't like it. But there is this weird thing that if you read the review itself, I think you'll, you'll see that maybe she was a bit conflicted. And then somebody alerts me to the fact that it, she's also written... And if it, Basically, what I'm saying is, patrons, if you enjoyed the first instalment of that review, then get yourself on goodreads.com, which is one of these sort of broader review sites. And you, you could also leave a review there if you like. But just check out the extended director's cut version of... <laughs> of that review it's like she's gone no nah, i'm not done with this prick and then she's had another dip but at the end she does she sort of make, makes the mistake of sort of saying well i'm so hard left i would never agree with anything anyway but at least it was fucking entertaining uh, and at least she's read the book and so look amidst me plugging all my shit and all myself in absorbed shit there was something i did recently that i feel is worth people checking out. I did an episode of Griefcast, the brilliant Griefcast, a podcast about grief. Yeah, I don't even think, well, brilliant, Jeff, that sounds like a laugh, don't it? I'll put that on it with the lads in the van going to the council job. Uh, no, but I, I, I'm glad I did it because there's been so much positive feedback about this. I was talking about the experience of uh, of losing uh, both my parents. I, I think I mentioned this on the last podcast with Kath, but I'll get into it in a bit more detail. And people have been coming back to me and wanting to talk to me about stuff. And I'm open to that. Look, if you want to talk to me about anything specific or anything that resonated, email what most people think UK uh, at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, just, just have a listen if there's anyone. And I would say this is probably, I'm probably talking particularly blokes, but not exclusively. If there's anyone who you think the way that I talk about grief and in particularly how, uh, the kind of grief that, that dads go through with stillbirth, then, then just, just flag it to them because you never know. There might be something in there that uh, that triggers something in them that is, is kind of useful. <sighs> anyway. I normally end these bits on a sort of light-hearted joke as we go back to the chat with the guest, the brilliant Matt Ford, but uh, it seems a bit inappropriate, so instead I'll just let the sting do the job for me. Is there something to be said there? You talk about Liberal Dems being sort of relieved to be out of government. You talk about some of the approach of the Corbyn years. Is 
Principled Opposition is a sweet gig, isn't it? It's a really fucking easy gig. Principled it is, opposition. but it's, you know what? This is where I think actually so much of politics comes down to character, not ideology. Is what sort of person are you? Do you actually want to get stuff done or do you just want to wank on looking clever? <laughs> and I think Tony <laughs> Benn and Tony Blair are two really good examples yeah. of either one. Is Tony Blair is a doer, wanted to get on, wanted to win, not because he wanted a trophy on his wall, because he realised years of futile opposition had achieved zero. Mm. So get on, do what it takes to win, and then you can do stuff. Tony Benn, blessed with a beautiful voice, a fine grasp of vocabulary, always would rather have been the one holding forth rather than taking difficult decisions. Corbyn, obviously a less fine grasp of language and vocabulary, but always wanted to be the protester. And I think whenever parties are in the hands of those types of people, it's, it's futile. And actually, you're letting the whole country down, not that they care about this, but in those years when the Tories were irrelevant, you thought, what are you doing? Hold the government to account. You know, this is important. And you're just indulging yourself. And obviously, Labour have a far you know, prouder history of those periods, sadly, than, than the Tories do. And it's worse on the left, because there is something deep inside a lot of Labour people that feels dirty about power. They think, oh, God, I have to compromise now. <laughs> they don't like it. They don't like having to defend decisions. They want to be attacking the powerful. So when they're the powerful, it scrambles their brainwaves. They can't handle it. No, it's a fair point. I mean, you mentioned, we, we, I, lo I love Double. I love how much Tony Blair is, come, comes up and your love of him. It, it, is, it is infectious. Um, it sort of brings me around about way... So you got this new podcast out, uh, British Scandals. Yes, uh, with Alice Levine, and I, I listened to a couple of episodes. I think it, I think it's great, and the, the structure of it is it's going through British Scandals. Alice Levine, the ones I've listened to, she mainly narrates, and then you come in and you pick up bits, uh, high production values. But the thing that I was thinking all along, she mentioned at the beginning of it that there'd be an episode on sexed up dossiers in Iraq, and I thought I want to hear. The Matt Ford take <laughs> in this. I don't know if you've already recorded that episode. That's a very pertinent question because I was recording an episode today, just before I got here. Yeah. So, um, yes, if you haven't heard it, I mean, it's very different to this podcast or the one that I usually make. Because like you say, the production values are just out of this world. So there's well, a kind sound of Hollywood... Man, it's cinematic, right? Yeah. So it's, And it's written in a particular way. So um, Alice... And I take it in turn to host series. So Alice is hosting series one about Litvinenko, and I chip in. And then series two is about the dossier that I host, and then Alice chips in. So yes, uh, I am <laughs> making a, you know, series two is, is about Iraq. But what I would say actually is, I have my own take on it that I remember at the time. I was working for a Labour MP at the time, who was anti-war. Uh, and me and him used to have some very passionate, um, but, you know, good-natured exchanges about it. And obviously I realised he was an MP and I was just some sort of young oik in his office. Um, actually, going back over it, I think it doesn't change my opinion of it, uh, of what happened uh, with the dossier and what happened with all those things. And obviously the suicide of David Kelly is just heartbreaking. It's just awful. Um, so going over that, you know, this the thing with the series is that it deals with really difficult things like the poisoning of Litvinenko. Yeah, some serious stuff, yeah. It's really serious subject matter. And I think going over it, actually, uh, because whenever you revisit something like that, it's not just stuff that you missed at the time or forgot. Sometimes your memory amalgamates things or, you know, you, you, you don't remember things correctly. So I, I, I did think, oh, crikey, you know, someone who uh, 
is effectively a Blairite going back over this. Is it going to, uh, are there going to be things that I forgot where I go, oh God, that sounds terrible. But <laughs> this may not surprise you to know. Here we go, drum roll. I read the Hutton Inquiry at the time. In fact, I still have a first edition of the Hutton, of, of, uh, Hutton and of Butler and of others. I was so immersed in it. I was working for a Labour MP. It was such a big deal if you were around Labour at the time that really no stone went unturned. So there, were no, there was nothing since that, uh, you know, there were no nasty surprises in the sense that I didn't think, oh, God. You know, so it's, it, it's really difficult because of David Kelly's suicide, because it's just for his family. You just can't stop thinking about his family. Mm. It's just so hard. It's really hard to talk about it because it's just a, it's just awful for them, and you feel just awful for him. Um, but but on on the Iraq stuff, on the dossier and things, obviously they made mistakes that they apologised for. Um, but my view in the wake of it all, which I think, and also as a country, we look at the British element. You can't take out the the, the other parts, which were he'd used. He'd had an active WMD program. He'd mm. used chemical weapons before we've been to war with him before you know i mean if you take the, the, out the context of the time i think sometimes it can be difficult and i think when you go back in you remind yourself of the context and the things that they admitted they got wrong then um yes it's not as if though i recorded that i went oh my god i've completely <laughs> changed my mind well yeah no i think that the political paradigm shifts and there are these ways that everyone kind of conveniently moves positions and and just that simple fact that blair won an election in 2005 and and you know the marches that we saw for Iraq at the time million people would have would have the big I mean now protests on a big scale is quite common I don't know if I've ever seen anything quite like that but <clears throat> but they still did win an election and that's something that Labour you know will often have to reckon with and and you know when, when I get people coming at me oh you, you selfish bastard voting Tory <laughs> and I get it I often say like did you <laughs> did oh, you vote Labour? Did you vote Labour in 2005? And people often say, yeah. And I say, was that an unequivocal endorsement of the Iraq war? You know what I wanted to say though, actually, just about your point about Blair in 2005, is that the reason so Blair was still popular at that point, and he wins a majority of 66, obviously down from 165 that it was in 2001, still a decent majority, particularly yeah. for Labour who until that point had never won two full terms in office, let alone three. The reason why opinion turns against Blair when he leaves is because people in the Labour Party started to slag him off publicly. Now, the Tories are always going to oppose Labour leaders. So you've got that side of the debate is always going to be there. If you don't defend your own leaders, particularly the successful ones, what hope have you got? What hope has the Labour Party... It is no coincidence that the more the Labour Party slags off Tony Blair, the further it gets from power. Because actually there's something else there. Even though public opinion has hardened against Iraq in time, what you're also saying to people is, you know that one guy we tr who you finally trusted, the, literally the only human being alive that's won a general election for Labour, mm. you were wrong to vote for him. Well, what does that tell you when the best... You're telling the public the best one we found, actually, is shit. Well, then what does that say about all the ones that have followed that aren't as good? Like, the logic is terrible. But this is the problem, is that for so many people, politics is settling scores, and fuck you, and we're going to control the party, and we're going to slag off Tony Blair, and there's nothing you can do about it. You think, well, well think fine, that, but you're going to lose. Well, I think that the problem in Labour Party, as I've said before, is it feels like... It feels like they argue over the football more than pl playing football. Like, whose ball it is. 
<laughs> seems to be a bigger issue than whether the match actually starts. Do you remember when you'd have morning break time, 15 minutes, yeah, and you'd be like, right. well, who wants to play a game? And you'd never actually start that. That, <laughs> <laughs> that does feel a bit... Like the Labour Party conference. Um, I'm going to go to the Patreon questions now because there were a lot of them. The most oh, I've ever been asked for any guest. Um, question from Richard. He had, he had a couple. I picked one. Um, are you actually enjoying life more on your podcasts and live shows more now you're not overtly a paid-up member of a political party? Oh, that's a really good question. Do you know what? I, I think the honest answer is probably no, because I've just always loved it. And yeah. even when I was, I mean, I can't believe it. So it's a positive no, in a way. Yes, but... it's a positive no that I've just always loved it. And I don't really feel any great sense of release. I was just, I just couldn't have anything to do with Labour. And I was already half out the door during the Ed Miliband year. So, yes, the, the quick answer actually is no. Um, uh, I've just always loved it. And I've always loved politicians from other parties that I've either respected or agreed with. So uh, Another thing that is massively unfashionable question, in the modern Labour party. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is from numerous people. Is And I, and I think... Why they, are you such a gun? <laughs> no, no, no. They know your pet areas. Uh, how does Sturgeon get away with her nationalism, her occasional use of fake news, her lack of accountability accountability for Scotland's performance on key government metrics. So how, how, why do you think she gets an easy ride? They are in. So there's a number of things. The first thing, the, the fundamental thing is a lack of any viable opposition for quite some time. That's crucial. Mm. Because come the vote, and it's just the same as when people say, well, can so many people in England vote for Boris? You're like, the choice was him or Corbyn. Mm. It was him or Corbyn. Like, you have to understand how horrific that was for millions of people, including Labour voters. So, again, in Scotland, until basically Anna Sawal showed up, there hasn't been really a big viable opposition. Scotland also has basically created the perfect storm constitutionally, where you can be in charge of Scotland and in opposition to the government in Westminster. So they enjoy all the trappings of being able to blame yeah. Westminster for everything that goes wrong, claim success for everything that goes right. On top of that, Sturgeon, to be fair to her, is a fairly canny operator. I don't think she's as good as people think she is. She's not like a Tony Blair-level politician, but in the context of Scotland at this time, is highly skilled and a very talented communicator and is a clear contrast, a clear Scottish contrast to Boris Johnson. So I think it's a number of things but mainly it's the lack of a, a viable opposition. It's the contrast with Johnson. And obviously 2014 changed politics in Scotland, probably even more than Brexit did across the UK. It was such a polarising. Yeah, it was a very, I don't think a lot of people in England understand. We, you know, Brexit was scarring, but it was something really fundamental in Scotland, wasn't it? And I think in a way, I think we've kind of moved on from Brexit in a way that we haven't, moved on from independence and that's because obviously the Brexiteers got what they wanted mm. and the leavers in this case haven't and they're in charge of the country but they can't the one thing the SNP exists to do is deliver independence and they the public will literally give them everything else apart from that and that must be a, really politically for them a, a Rubik's Cube that at the moment can't be solved now that doesn't mean they can't solve it in the next couple of years um, but the danger is obviously is the SNP are really popular mm. And they've done very, very well in these elections. Um, but the, the one thing they cannot give a good enough answer on is the economy. They cannot admit that independence would initially set Scotland back in quite a profound way, that you would need deep austerity, big cuts, in order to 
set up your own central bank, build up reserves of a current currency, and apart from anything else, replace that lost funding that they get uh, as part of the UK. And, and that's the problem is that people go, they love the idea of it, love the romance of it, fuck Boris off, fuck Brexit off. But when their idea, their alternative universe comes up against reality, the polling's clear. People just don't is. believe them on the economy. Well, they've got to come up against the paradoxes of their own existence. You know, like the, what they've said about democracy and, and what they've done in terms of uh, Brexit. There's another dimension as well is that, you know, in a sort of sturgeon friendly centrist media, she is often portrayed as a kind of liberal spirit animal. Oh, she's adorable. She makes, she makes me feel amazing. But but ultimately, very soon, you know, if this ref if a second referendum happens, they've got to come up against something which is basically, you know, a version of leaving the EU, but it's sort of worse and 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 then this press and I wonder if they'll be able to do it. They've then got to flip all this back, and 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 attack her in the same way they they attack the idea of leaving the EU. And I just don't know if they'll how well, they do what? that. You know what? It comes back to something you said right at the start of this, which is about Orwell and Englishness and Britishness and the way that we view ourselves. There is a sympathetic view in large parts of England, particularly liberal left England. Oh, I don't mind Scottish nationalism. It's okay. It's not the same as English nationalism. You know, it's not scary. And in that regard, they're right. Um, uh, although Scottish nationalism obviously has its extremists. Um, and they think, oh, if they, if they want it, let them have it. You know, those people don't understand what the values of the Labour movement are. And this is, this is where Labour's got itself into so much trouble is so many of their supporters support independence. And you can see why, given all the things that we've just outlined. But... Labour values are about unity. That's why Labour was pro-staying in the EU and pro-keeping this tiny island together and not erecting borders between two countries that are frank. You will not find two countries on earth with more in common than Scotland and England in literally every regard. Not just the currency we use and the language we use, but cult we laugh at the same things, we go to the same festivals, but literally every part of our lives is identical. We use different words for, you know, a sandwich in different parts of, you know, that's true in parts of England as well. Like we are not these great enemies and that's been the real tragedy of it. And what Labour people need to understand is if you truly believe in Labour values, independence is the polar opposite of that. It does drive a wedge between neighbours. It does make, uh, you know, societal bonds harder to keep. It is economically damaging. There's nothing progressive about that from a Labour point of view. So I think a lot of people who claim to be Labour, including Jeremy Corbyn actually, don't know their own Labour history and don't really understand the values of the party. Now, it's not that Labour values will save the union because conservative values will help as well. But I think specifically for the English liberal left, they don't really appreciate that Scotland isn't a victim in the UK. They can't get over the fact because they, they can't help but place it in a broader narrative, basically about the West and England specifically and Britain as well, that somehow it feels like oh, it's an injustice that Scotland's part of this, even though Scotland voted to remain. And mm. even though I think and all nations get a favourable deal out of the UK, it is not a negative relationship. And I think the sooner we start admitting that actually the UK benefits us all and it's a positive thing, the better. It's, 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 no, I mean, the, the, the jeopardy in this is, is massive. But in fairness to uh, nationalists, um, Brexit did change the deal. You know, yeah. I, I, get, I get that. Is there an argument for, for having that second referendum, winning it, settling the question because at the moment what we have is, is a circling uncertainty over the future if we then have that election the big issues are settled for quite a long time you know but it, or, or for you it's just a danger that the scottish people might vote vote leave well, i think if obviously if scotland doesn't want to stay in the uk anymore shouldn't be forced to stay 
sadly, the polling doesn't, you know, the SNP used to say, oh, once polling's at 60, 70% consistently in favour of uh, leaving the UK, that's when we'll have a referendum. Mm. At best, it's 50-50. And in fact, recent polls suggest support for leaving has, has fallen back, which is understandable given the vaccine and just the fact that people are thinking about COVID. They're not thinking mm. about independence, you know. Um, also because some of the worst dystopian ends of the Brexit predictions haven't come true yet. Now, I'm not saying they won't in the fullness of time, but with the super gonorrhea and the empty supermarkets, like, there is a degree to which it's slightly more benevolent in the context of COVID than we were led to believe. Maybe. I think COVID obviously has just taken over. So how do you know what's COVID and what's Brexit in terms of like the economics? Obviously, the vast majority of it is COVID. But the point I was going to make on another referendum is if opinion was so strong in favour of one, I think at some point, you put, and anyway, I think at some point, if the SNP keep winning in the way that they are, at some point, you're probably going to have to have another one. But I would caution against an early one because don't presume you're going to win it, as Cameron found out. Mm. And ultimately, it wasn't that long ago that Scotland had a referendum and decisively voted. So it was only six years ago, less than seven years ago, six and a half years ago. <clears throat> Obviously, we've got COVID to deal with. So it really, for the next two or three years, I think it's not unreasonable to say this can't be a priority. Um, there was a question here from Julia. I just want to do two quite quick ones. So oh, yeah. one from Julia, which is, do you still think, I mean, we might have covered it slightly, but you said once upon a time that you felt that Labour were the only real entity that can make the country fairer. Uh, do you still think that's possible? Or do you think that their version of fairness has centred so much on identity issues that the broader issue of fairness has been lost? I don't think they're the only party that can deliver fairness. Um, but I think that really, when the Labour Party is sensible, it is the best vehicle for progressive social change that we have when it wins. And obviously they are two massive caveats. Yeah. But really we've never seen, um, or certainly I hadn't seen, uh, you know, if you think of the NHS, the welfare state, and then the sort of Blair government of the late 90s, noughties, just huge positive social change done very quickly. They're almost impatient for it. And I think you only really get that animated desire to really tackle inequality under a Labour government. And it doesn't mean the Tories don't do good stuff. It doesn't mean that there aren't plenty of Tories that care. But it's never their top priority in the same way that it is when the Labour Party is functioning properly. And I just think, it, I understand why people have, you know, I've been driven away from the Labour Party. And I understand why, in a, you know, in a terrible election, people were forced between two very, very unappealing uh, choices for a lot of them. Obviously for others, it was, they really liked Boris Johnson. I, d I don't take anything away from that. Um, but, you know, COVID has highlighted it. And anyway, for all our strengths, and, and I, I really, you know, I'm not down on the country at all. So many people still don't get a decent crack at life. And that's terrible. There is so much talent wasted in this country and it drives me mad. But you and, know what, uh, Matt, it's like the way that you speak and the clarity with which you speak and communicate and passion is that once upon a time, and I'm sure a lot of people listen to this will think this, is that why doesn't Matt get involved in Labour? <laughs> but, but, but now... Given the absolute shit shot, that would be the last thing as a mate that I would think would suggest that you do. Who the fuck would, with those talents, would want to get... Because people say this to me, not as much probably as they do to you. You go, we're in a great city. We can wang on about politics, you know what I mean? We can say things that people go, well, that's a really good point. <laughs> There's absolutely no way I would give this up. So I, I would say to anyone that's thinking, why doesn't Matt... And there will be plenty thinking, why doesn't Matt get involved with Labour Party? I'm thinking, well, if you like him, you wouldn't suggest that. Now, <laughs> 
<laughs> now the final question here is, and I can't, sorry, I can't. <coughs> which Patreon suggested this? Is uh, said you do loads of great impressions. Have you got a Jeff Norcott impression? Oh God, that's a really good question. I've never tried one before. I mean, one of the if if you're trying to get a. By the way, your Patreons are fantastic. They're really Brilliant, really oh, good mate, engaged mate, questions. So good. So good. Um, I would. St- I think you have to start with the face with any impression. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Particularly if you're doing them on stage. So I do the kind of uh, Norcott yeah. kind of. Uh, you've got a way of kind of yeah. The eyebrow goes up. You always look really focused. I think. I think. Fuck, he's really concentrating. That's that's anxiety, by the way. But no, it's good to know that it comes across. Do you, have, you don't have anxiety, oh, mate. Mate, it's it's a thing like it's so funny when people kind of comment comment on TV appearances, going smug prick. I'm going, God, I'd love to be smug. Whereas actually, I'm sort of thinking, Oh my God, heart rates up. I'm going to die. Maybe have a stroke. You know, I'm often having like these really. God, how the fuck did this become like about that? <laughs> oh, look, Matt, all I was going was, can you do a stupid voice? We'll sign yeah. off from <laughs> Well, sorry, yeah. So, uh, well, I never think you look smug. I think you always look like you're really concentrating. Well, that's good. Then. I think, wow, you're in the zone. I think you're in effect, the zone. isn't it? You know, the so the kind of, uh, yeah, the, um, the raise of the eyebrow. I mean, you're chirpy as well, aren't you? So, you know, I mean, I'm just doing a generic southern thing now. Well, do you know what? I, I you think... know what? <laughs> <laughs> That's Frank Bruno. <laughs> what was that? Well, well look, we've only scratched the surface in this chat. Well, he scratched the surface. Like... <laughs> I'm just doing a deliberately bad one now on purpose. But I think maybe but... I'd love to have you back on very soon. And oh, mate, like... I'd love to be back on. This has been such a treat. You're such a generous host, Jeff, and you're such no, a, man, I, I, you're such a lovely, you. reasonable bloke, you know. And, and uh, it's always just such a pleasure talking politics with you because you're so, you really care about it, you're really clever. You talk about it in a way that makes it so accessible. I just think you've done so much good. Well, listen, me and Matt are off to get a room at a Premier Inn and just fucking, well, do what we need to do. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Matt, just quickly before you go, any, any stuff? So obviously there's the British Scandal podcast. Any other stuff you want to plug? Oh, yes. Um, so when will this go out, by the way? Uh, probably Wednesday. I'd like to turn Oh, great. Week, yeah. Yes, so I've, um, I'm doing some political party live shows in the West End. So on the 24th of May, on the Monday, my guests are Saeed Avasi and Peter Mandelson. Um, on the 25th, Andrea Ledsam and Keir Starmer. That one has already sold out. Yeah. And then on the 2nd of June at the Vaudeville Theatre, Jess Phillips and Esther McVeigh. And there's only a couple of wow, tickets left for, for all of those. Brilliant yeah. pairing of MPs, that is. Yeah, so I'm really excited. Get involved in that. Obviously, the book is still out, Politically Homeless as well, which you can yes. get on, on Amazon. Uh, and Matt Ford, thank you so much for coming on What Most People oh. Pleasure, Jeff. Thank you so much. Okay, what a chat that was with Matt Ford. So much stuff coming off the back of that that I know you're going to want to discuss. As usual, well, as usual, I've started doing this on the Patreon site as I post up that the episode is live and then people can have a chat and we have a little community chat after that, which people seem to be enjoying, so I'll keep doing Uh, that if there's any particular issues you want to raise with me what most people think uk at gmail.com okay we're just going to do one letter this week which we will hop into now so as i was saying earlier this episode of Griefcast seemed to have uh, resonated with quite a few people and i had a correspondent here um i'm not going to say name because i didn't check okay but i think they, they told me a story they went through a very similar run of loss um to me but they also told me a story which i think is so funny and worth and worth sharing 
Uh, and they say, to finish with, I'll tell you a true story about my dad. After my mum passed away, me and my two brothers did all the funeral arrangements. My mum had never said how she wanted it, and no one liked to, to bring up the subject. So we gave her a Catholic service, chose the hymns, and then the crematorium. Me and my brothers then decided to ask Dad how he wanted his funeral. I was tasked with asking him. I said, Dad, when mum passed away, we didn't know what sort of funeral we want she wanted, so we made it up. How would you like yours to be? And he replied, what do you mean, son? Well, I said, well, do you want to be buried or cremated? And he said, I don't know, surprise me. <laughs> I mean, it's always amazing when your parents do stuff in life that actually helps you write the fucking eulogy. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so there's a story which is in the book, actually, about my mum. Uh, so when she was, she wanted, she wanted, I mean, it's all in the book, but she wanted the most basic funeral possible. And a lot of people do want this. And sometimes it's actually harder to deliver than you'd think. But um, she had a very dark sense of humour. So we're trying to think of what song to play her out with. And she loved, she loved going down Bogner. And when she was going to Bogner, she'd always get herself in a holiday mood by playing that song, feeling hot, hot, hot. So first up, innocently enough, we just said, well, let's play that. And then we're like, ah, and she's just about to go through the curtain to get cremated. Oh, everyone will see the funny side. And suffice to say, everybody did not see the funny side. That is pretty much it for this week. What a great episode with Matt Ford. Can't wait to hear everybody's feedback from that. Uh, as ever, let's stick with the meat and potatoes. Is it meat and potatoes in the show? Meat and two bread? Meat and dick and balls? <laughs> this, is my, this is me fluffing while I'm trying to get up the iTunes reviews. We're getting a lot more listeners on the podcast, man. Thank you. If you're recommending it to people, it's great. It's growing and growing. This is from Emperor Dalek. Great to hear someone who sounds like me on a podcast, a fellow working class background, South Londoner and of a similar age. Thought your hair looked very natural on Politics Live this week. Thought my hair looked very natural. What weird. Do you know when someone just says, <laughs> that's quite a good mindfuck. What? I'd never even thought about how my hair looks. Uh, this is from Whammer. He says, he may be a bit of a twat. However, he's my kind of twat. Really look forward to this every week. I've bought the book, got patreon up. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you for all of that. Uh, this is from Schmidt61. Uh, oh, no, he's, he's Northern. I'm a bit of a grumpy, grey-haired, Northern taxpaying, working-class bloke. Vote story and pro-Brexit. Good to listen to a comic who is genuinely funny with a right of centre view of the world and tends to accord with my own. Don't always agree with him, but really look forward to his weekly podcast. And I say it's something... If I'm reading this in a mank accent and this guy's a scouser, he's going to write me another fucking review. So shall I fucking morph halfway through? I often force my wife to listen to some of the best bits. <laughs> uh, Jeff tends to have interesting guests. Uh, Owen Jones came across as quite reasonable. Uh, wasn't expecting that. <laughs> listen, man, uh, thank you very much for that. And then we have one more review here. Uh, this is from Holly Dooley. Holly Dooley. Holly Dooley. That sounds like one of those millennial names, doesn't it? I, follow, I mean, that's probably the least amount of fans I've got is in the millennial uh, category. I follow Jeff Norcott from the start of his What Most People Think podcast, and it's just great. Thank you for... I just, just thank you this week. Thank you for buying the book. Thank you for writing reviews. Thank you for feeding back. Thank you for being a friend. Travel down the road and back again. Your heart is true. You're a pal and a confidant. How much this fucking song does he know? I didn't even realise I knew the song. And if you threw a party and invited everyone you knew, 
Sing along, everybody. You would see the biggest gift from would be from me. And looks kind of fucked. Oh, he's lost it. Yeah.